0: Welcome to the show where we interview our network of B2B SaaS experts. This is the Notion Capital Podcast, hosted by Paul Papadimitriou. Hi, and today I'm with Chris. Chris, we already had him in our first ever episode of the podcast, and uh, we decided to have him again because last time we had Joss, uh, his partner, and I wanted to talk a bit more to Chris about his investment philosophy. So hi, Chris, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, it's great to be back. How are you? Not very good myself. So for those who haven't listened, bad if you haven't, to the first episode we ever did, can you just quickly tell us who you are?
1: I'm uh, Chris Topman, partner of Notion Capital. We're a European-centric SaaS investor. We set up Notion after the exit of Message Labs, which was the biggest SaaS exit in Europe in 2008, which we sold to Semantics.
0: So... The idea I had was to put your philosophy in context. You just uh, announced an investment in a company called Unbabel. So first of all, can you tell us what is Unbabel? And then we'll kind of dive in into why you invested in them and why did you find them so extraordinary? Unbabel
1: are building the translation layer for the internet. They're using a whole host of the sort of advanced emerging technologies, mobile first, machine learning, AI, and um, We'd known them for about 18 months. They came out of Y Combinator a few couple of years back over that period of time we'd seen the way that they would evolve in terms of how do you you know how do you address such a huge problem there's so much optionality as to what particular use case you may or may not solve you know it's very overbearing There's sort of different types of challenges of written content if you like that needs translating whether that's a website or whether that's FAQ whether that's technical literature or blogs and so on and so forth but Earlier this year, they'd really done a lot of analysis of their numbers to figure out where they should really, really start in terms of acquiring lots and lots of customers. And that fits in far more with our philosophy of how we invest and the things we like to invest that led to a whole set of strategy sessions and discussions that meant that we invested in them in the summer which we were really really pleased
0: about what was that that besides the technology itself because honestly when you talk about that translation layer for the internet it sounds like star trek (laughs) what is it that you find in them that makes you like wow they have like this huge market in front of them but not only they have that but they will execute and actually grab that market
1: i think in every deal that we do or i do each partner probably has a subtly different thing that really gets them off their SC, if you should have been. There's a sort of converging set of themes. Typically for an investor, you know, you need a market that is big enough whereby it can kick off many, many incredibly large companies that you can invest in. So if you think about language translation, it's something we know really, really well in terms of the problem that that does in terms of scaling a business. You know, at Message Labs, we went from a million to $150 million in subscription, 20,000 corporates, 10 million users all around the world. These were from more than 200 companies countries i didn't even know there were 200 countries before i founded message labs but by (laughs) christ did my service desk know that we had all of these different languages coming in and as a consequence virtually all of our investments were dedicated to markets that were english speaking or english was the business language in fact we only had more than two people in two countries that weren't english speaking as a national and that's because you've got to localize the website your contracts your service desk has got issues your mps is lower so the unit economics are worse we really understood the challenge of language translation in message labs. And so from a top-down basis, you think, well, how big would the global economy be if language wasn't a barrier anymore? It would just be a multiple X of what it is today. And so if Unbabble is able to build the translation layer for the internet, that's clearly something that piques our interest. So that's a starting point on the size of the market and the problem in the market. It's about $2 billion a year. Additional spend goes into language translation. So just the additional spend per year is relatively significant. But of course, you have the challenges of choosing where are you going to start to play in building your technology business and, you know, which problem are you going to point that at Because that's a really big, big ocean to kind of boil. And earlier in the year, we really felt that they'd kind of found that acquisition type of strategy that became more appealing to us.
0: Which one is that? Because, of course, when you say translation layer, you said websites, for instance, where you could say documents, you know, legal documents, it could be anything. So which angle did they go for? The angle was in service tickets. So if you like, it's in the communication space,
1: but it's not short form today or long form marketing. It's really in communications. And the particular area, they had an integration with Zendesk, the service SaaS business. And the challenges that those customers were having on there, people like Pinterest, Under Armour, Skyscanner, they've got globally distributed consumers that are asking them about issues relating to their application. So, for example, you would have a German-speaking service ticket coming into a U.S. service desk. How do you support that when you're talking about tens of thousands of tickets? With Unbabble, the German text comes in, the support desk writes it in their own language, in this case, English, and then the consumer gets it in German. And so all of that happens using their API, advanced technologies like AI, ML, and that delivers a sort of an in time service. And the machines can pick up a huge amount of the load, which drives up the speed, drives down the cost. This is an area where language translation has just not been delivered. Delivered before because you need to have speed, you need quality, and you need cost to come kind of enter into that market. And so, it's embedding Unbabel's technology into the applications of Zendesk. And so, you know, they've now moved that onto Salesforce's service desk as well. And that means that they can attract and drive huge amounts of global and enterprise customers with very, very high quality proposition, but pretty low friction on the acquisition side. You know, customers absolutely love it. And they're then able to trade off between the types of people that they hire, how many they need to hire, whether they hire them for technical skills in the domain that they're in, or is it because of their language skills. All of these things become much less of a problem when you're embedding Unbabel into that flow. So that in itself isn't necessarily an enormous market in its own right. It's actually an entirely new market for language translation. But all of those global enterprise customers have a host of translation challenges that Ambabble can start to tackle once they've acquired them as a customer. So for us, the acquisition strategy looked really, really strong. The NPS was super high. And then it's the ability to then add additional APIs that sit around those buyers to solve their other challenges. So it's really exciting.
0: And also, there's this old trend lately about this explosion of bots. And I think that also kind of plays well with that run, right? Well, yeah, I think it's really, really interesting because bots
1: only speak the language that they're programmed in, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say typically that's English. That's not true, but let's say typically that is English. So if bots are a way for computers to interface with consumers, and consumers don't speak that natural language of that bot, hey, you've got a problem. It doesn't matter whether you're talking to a bot or a service agent, the language is still a problem. So they have an API that you can plug into that, and therefore they will deliver multilingual bots through unbabble Every time we create one of these wonderful inventions like a bot, you just create... <laughs> A whole host of alternative challenges yeah. <laughs> for people that are managing these environments. You know, the bot is clearly an area, is something that's hugely exciting. But it's not particularly exciting if the bot is talking gobbledygook to you and you're trying to get your, <laughs> you know, your issues resolved. So, and it's just a very, very clear example of how language translation is a kind of a material
0: issue for scale. Besides the technology, which again sounds super cool, and I, and I wish I could use that today for everything I do and not having to use translators for my job, what was it about founders? Because I remember when we talked the first time in our first episode, you had this very big emphasis on founders. What was that attracted you to those founders? I think
1: when you found businesses and you've scaled businesses yourself, and you then move on to investing in founders, you know, you are deeply curious as to what is it that brought the founders to decide to kind of put put their family life on hold, see less of their children and commit themselves overly fully into this idea that they have. And uh, in Mbab we've got Vasco, Zhao, Hugo, Bruno. And, um, you know, these are very, 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 very smart boys. I mean, they have, you know, more PhDs than I think I've got fingers. All of these things in themselves are not enough, but I always think about with founders, which is like, you know, if they're going to make a big dent on the planet, you know, what are they going to make a big dent on the planet doing? In this space, you know, there is just a really incredible chemistry with these individuals. And you can tell if somebody genuinely is going to be the genesis of a very, very large company that is going to build something like the translation layer for the Internet, then it's probably going to be these guys. That is very, very, very exciting. Now, you don't build a huge company solely because you've got four founders is there's a whole way that a company evolves over time. Um, so it's also their ability to think big, to execute big and the disciplines that they've got, but they've also got to evolve a lot faster into other areas that they're less familiar in, maybe as they move into the kind of commercial realms of monetizing the technology, building the business internationally and so on and so forth. So what you're looking for is, you know, that personal awareness, but also their awareness of the company to think very, very openly, make really, really tough decisions about the choices that they're gonna make. And you know, we spent a hell of a lot of time working with them pre-deal and the feedback Feeling around that was really, really, really strong that, you know, we can augment them with some world-class people that can help them exploit the opportunity. A lot of founders get trapped in that role as to who are they, what do they do. A lot of them haven't built multi-hundred million dollar businesses before. They need support in doing that. And it's about you know their willingness to appreciate and understand about what their role is, how they can evolve in their role, but also other people that they need to bring in. And we're really comfortable having been through this ourselves that we can kind of help them in those areas. And so post deal, we're now working on attracting some really, really exciting people out of the space and the adjacent space to help them evolve the business model, evolve the commercial framework for scaling the business and building the teams out.
0: So they have to be smart. They have to be creative. They have to evolve super fast. That's the one you actually insisted on. If I read it correctly, they have to do two things at the same time. They have to be almost aggressive because they have to scale fast, but at the same time smart enough to think things through. So they have to be kind of slower in that sense. It's a hard equilibrium to achieve. I think that's right. When you have a home run
1: as an investor and all the people around the table equally get their fair share of that home run, we'll typically be investing in a company that's got 12 people. Well, that home run will probably have a board of 12 people. So how do you go from two or three founders, 12 people to possibly four, five, 600 people over a five, six, seven year period? Globally distributed, huge amounts of responsibility to the customers and the markets that you serve. These become very, very different businesses as you go through each phase. You just need to be comfortable that founders are really ready and prepared. Uh, That's the journey that they're going to go on. And they're comfortable with you and you're comfortable with them to go on that journey together. You know, being smart enough is just not enough. Being aggressive enough isn't enough. Being patient enough its a kind of combination of things. And as a team at Notion, we spend a lot of time working with founders, talking about that, figuring that out for them themselves and getting a, a sense of whether that's a company that we can all really build together rather than just being solely an investor that monitors their investment and checks in at four or five times a year. So you have to be really, really committed to the team and you have kind of a shared ambition and are, are prepared for that journey.
0: So if I, uh, if I use the same qualifications, smart, creative, leadership, patient, but also that evolving super fast, is that something that you've been also sensing at Notion Capital itself? Have you seen your way of thinking or investing Is it different now than it was five years ago?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think if you go from being an operator to an investor, you're effectively not a great investor. You're just a self-appointed partner, but effectively you're a trainee investor. And I've worked in four sectors in my business lifetime. So this is just my latest, if you see what I mean. So I always feel like I need to start from the bottom and the beginning. You learn the industry playbook, which typically is full of best practice, which is normally the guardrails for larger companies. But then as an entrepreneur, you will then obviously start to throw some of that playbook away and put your own bent on that. That's certainly the kind of process that I've been through so Generally speaking, there are two or three things that mostly fascinate me when I make an investment. One is the business model. Two is the pain that you're going to solve and how you're going to solve that problem. And the third piece of that is the team that you work with. So a lot of those things have evolved in the eight years that we've been building Notion for myself and I think equally for other partners.
0: On that, Chris, I'll be interviewing you again in the future to see if you keep evolving. I'm sure you do. And uh, thank you so much for today. It's been great. Thanks, Paul.